our team ran through walls. They just did. And every day people came back, even with so much uncertainty and people were scared. And it was on me and the rest of the leadership team to say, we're going to be here with you. We're going to tell you what we know. We'll be back tomorrow to tell you what has changed. And whatever happens, we're going to be here together. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Welcome to our Women's History Month series on Skimmed from the Couch, where we're telling you about the women who made history this past year. Dr. Laura Foris joins us on today's episode. She's the Chief Operating Officer of New York Presbyterian, one of the largest nonprofit hospitals in the country. Under her leadership, New York Presbyterian has been on the front lines fighting the COVID-19 pandemic since last year. Dr. Foris, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Your resume is very long, as, as I think doctors and chief operating officers uh, tend to be. What's one job or one experience you've had that means the most to you? I started wanting to be a doctor from the time I was a little girl. So it really is about caring for patients. But I really have shifted after I was in practice for about 10 years. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And I moved to become a full-time hospital executive because I thought I'd be able to have more impact And so now as the chief operating officer of a big hospital system, my job is really to make sure that the business runs so that our doctors, our nurses have everything that they need to do what they do best, which is care for our patients. So I've in some ways come full circle from where I thought I was going to be when I was a little girl. How did you know that you wanted to be in medicine when you were a kid? You know, Carly, I have no real good answer for that. (laughs) Just from the time I was a little girl, I thought, oh, that would be a great job. Every kid knows what a doctor is. They're going to help you get better. And I must say my parents were always very encouraging. I don't have doctors in my family, but I had that as a little girl and I stuck with it. When reading about you, what stood out was that you had, one of the things that many that stood out was that early on in your residency, you had twins. And I feel like I know everything there is to know about med school and residencies because I've seen Grace Anatomy. So I am very, very educated on your field. I still watch it. So I feel like I'm right in there. But I want you to take us back to, to that time. What was that time like for you, especially at a time when there were very few women in orthopedics? Well, let me start with there were actually very few women in my medical school class. Unlike today, where we have more women medical students than men, it was unusual then And I chose a field that had very few women in it. I was the first, one of the first women in my particular program, and I was the first one to be pregnant. So right there, that was something that was very unusual. And then I did it in a big way because I had twins. So I needed to negotiate some time off. I had to be on bed rest for a little while. 
I also, of course, needed to have a maternity leave. And that wasn't something that just flowed easily as everybody thought about what that meant. So I really felt I was breaking some ground then. And being in the same institution over now many years, I was able to see how that really changed over time. It's so much more common now for women to be in all of our fields. We still have work to do on moving women into more leadership roles, but it really looks very different than it did for me decades ago. And I'm proud to say that I feel like I've had a hand in also making it a place that is more welcoming for women. How did you go about asking for what you needed? Because, you know, as you said, which is kind of funny, like you not only were the first to get pregnant, but you did it in a big way. And I think what's hard is you might not have known what you needed. So how did you go about having that conversation? It's funny, I can remember that day that I had to go in and explain to my boss, my chairman, that I was going to need this time off and this was going to be so different. I have to say he was terrific. He didn't know what this was all going to mean, but he believed in me and he said, we're going to figure it out. You'll get what you need. And I must say that forever I have been grateful to him Here was someone who did not have a lot of experience, but he was candid about saying, I'm going to try to figure this out with you. And that's really what we need. We need, even when we haven't been in that experience, to say, well, we're going to figure this out and we'll figure it out together. I was very nervous when I went into that conversation and he was terrific. How much time did you end up taking? I ended up needing about six weeks before the babies were born. And then I had about six, maybe seven weeks afterwards. Part of it was I had to get back to work. Uh, I was in the middle of a training program and I needed to meet all my requirements. That again was 30 years ago. So now things look a little bit different. There's been a better understanding of, you're gonna have women in all of the fields of medicine and an understanding of we need to make time for what this is, going to do in terms of a training period. In your 30s, you underwent treatment for breast cancer and you all of a sudden were very much on the other side of the doctor-patient relationship. I cannot imagine like what flipping that switch must have been like, let alone obviously dealing with such a, a scary brush with your own mortality. Would love to just sort of hear how you navigated that. That was a tough time. It was strange being on the other side of that. At that point, I'd been a doctor for a number of years. I was taking care of lots of patients, and I was surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised. I have a family history of breast cancer, but I was surprised that it hit me too. And then to go through that experience, it was a long year, lots of surgery, chemo, radiation. I was very fortunate. I'm a doctor. My husband's a doctor, also a surgeon. We had lots of advantages. I had an incredibly supportive family, friends, and work environment, and I still found it hard. I think the most important issue that I took away from that is how hard it is to be a patient and to navigate the system. And 
while I would never wish something like that on anyone, I think it made me better at my job. And I've had that conversation with many physicians who've gone through something significant where we all acknowledge that one's ability to empathize then with others is certainly heightened. The idea of being one of the only women in your field, then being the first in your group to have not only a baby, but twins, then battling breast cancer at at an early age. How did you handle that? Like anything else, you have to deal with what life throws you. I had that from my parents from the time I was a little kid, that life is not always going to be easy. I certainly wasn't expecting that. I have an incredibly supportive husband. We're already married for 32 years as I talk to you today. And that was a huge part of this was that I had that support. I had my family around. I had three little kids at the time. And you just go forward. Now, I also recognize that I was very, very fortunate having all of that support system in place. And in a way, that's what enabled me to have a perspective on a lot of things in the rest of my life, right? That's for me, this is decades ago now that I was going through some of these things. And I've have this perspective perhaps that says you can you can do more than you think you can at any given time. And in a way, that was very helpful in this last year as everyone had to do more than we thought we could in a very difficult 12 months. We're going to talk in a few minutes about this past year, but I'm curious how going through your own medical trauma and personal crisis changed you as a doctor. As I said, it really is hard to be a patient. You're going through lots of emotions. Often patients are in pain. It's scary. You feel very vulnerable. It can be very hard to absorb everything that someone is telling you. And having that experience for me, I still remember it again many years after going through all those experiences, I remember how scared I was. And so now part of my job as a hospital executive is to help the team take care of patients. I'm not doing it directly, but we're all thinking about what's the experience that patients have? How do we make it easier? How do we make it better for the family? Those are the kinds of things that I felt differently about having been through that myself. When you are in the position of being a patient, everyone says advocate for yourself, right? Be the advocate on behalf of your friends and family. Then also when people are asking me for career advice, I'm like, you got to advocate for yourself because no one else will. On the patient part, how do you actually do that? You know, from your position, I think that is good advice, but sometimes people don't know how to do that or don't know what that means or haven't had someone to do that for them before. Well, a couple of things are important. If you have any kind of support system, family, friends, you need to lean on them because patients need so much energy, both physically and mentally to get well. So look to 
wherever you can get support from. And it could be things like bring someone with you whenever you can to an appointment. They can hear some things that you may not be able to hear. That's just good advice in general. But certainly when you're going through something significant, you might miss something. Someone who can be there as that emotional support to allow you to give in to those emotions that are going to come up when someone is sick. Those are such important lessons that someone else can help you with so that you don't just have to be strong yourself. I want to talk about your career transition. We talk a lot on this show about career transitions, but I I think you might be, I could stand to be corrected, but I think if you're not the only one, one of very few doctors that we have talked to who transitioned into the business capacity in the medical field. And I am fascinated by this. What led you to make that decision? How did you know that that was the right path for you? I had always been interested in organizations and management. And I went back to school early in my career to get a degree in policy and management. And I started to use it a little bit as I was in my very early stages of my career taking care of patients. And I liked it and started to use some of those skills more and more. Again, I had terrific mentors along the way who also said to me, you like some of this, you're good at some of these organizational efforts, do more. And I did that for many years while I was taking care of patients and then made that switch. Now, we just talked about my experience with having a significant illness, with having cancer. And it was during that time that I really was able to say, I'm going to move and make this career transition. I can do more in the way of impact. And it's not that I didn't enjoy taking care of patients, not that I didn't enjoy operating, but I saw an opportunity to do something else. And so that's really, for me, how I made that transition. What was the hardest part about transitioning? Well, in some ways, starting over because I had to enter. I had already achieved years of being a surgeon. And now I had to enter into really a lower level because I had to learn the business. So in that point, that was important to recognize that I had to prove myself. So we are one year out from the beginning of this pandemic. Take us back in your mind. You had to lead a massive team. You were at the epicenter of the COVID crisis with very little information. How were you communicating with your team at that time? And I think that it's really interesting looking at this from a management perspective. We talk about the importance and value of transparency, but also what is it like to have to be transparent when the information is so dire? So interesting that we're talking about this topic this month because we really are at the one-year mark. In early March of last year, New York Presbyterian had the first patient who had to be hospitalized for COVID. I actually, I want to stop you right there. Literally like put us in the room. Where were you when you got the call that somebody's been hospitalized? It was something that we had been preparing for. We knew that this disease was out there. 
but we had no sense of what it was going to turn into. And so on that very first day, our CEO and I got onto a broadcast for our entire organization and said, we were expecting to have a patient with COVID. Now we have it. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to give you information. But we also said, there's a lot we don't know. And spontaneously, I said at the end of that first broadcast, I'll be back tomorrow. We'll give you more information tomorrow. And that broadcast, I had no idea at the time, that broadcast went on every single day for weeks on end. To give you a perspective of what we faced, we had no idea on day one, three weeks after that first patient New York Presbyterian alone, my hospital system alone, was up at 1,700 inpatients. We eventually got, at the six-week mark, we topped out at 2,600 inpatients. That's just our system. It was incredible. As I look back on what that was, our team ran through walls. They just did. And every day people came back, even with so much uncertainty, and people were scared. And it was on me and the rest of the leadership team to say, we're going to be here with you. We're going to tell you what we know. We'll be back tomorrow to tell you what has changed. And whatever happens, we're going to be here together. I mean, as a world, as a country, as leaders, as individuals, it's just been an unbelievable year. We have all, I mean, like Danielle and I have each had our moments of just breaking down and you're worried about your family, you're worried about your jobs, you're worried about your friends, you're worried about the state of the world. Like, were there moments that you just closed your office door? What were those kind of just emotional moments for you? Well, there were a lot of times in which the question was, are we doing the right thing? What else do we need to be doing? And I would be kidding everyone to say that I wasn't anxious. Of course I was anxious about this, but I also recognized that we had this incredible team, people who were counting on on us, on me, to be that trusted source of information and to provide what they needed. Now, obviously it couldn't take away the the disease, but there was a lot that we could do and we did to try to make it as manageable as possible for our teams. And that's why part of it was, I can't break down. We have to all be here for our patients. People are counting on us and getting lots of feedback from our incredible team members was so important. What do you need? What else? Some things were obvious. We needed to think about their physical health. And of course, we had to provide PPE and, and those equipment and materials. But it was also people, as they were anxious about, kids were now out of school. What were they going to do about childcare? How could we help facilitate that? People were anxious about getting onto mass transit. We decided to bring our own buses in and uh, take people back and forth to work. We knew people 
we're, we're going to struggle with, you know, how am I going to think about food? We were feeding our team members on site for four meals a day for four months. Remember, hospitals don't close. Of course, there were some people who could stay home, but that's a small number relative to the people that we needed on site, the front line, and those who were supporting the front line. So that's what was so important. And I think that's what kept me and lots of people going was that other people were counting on us. How did you or were you able to, I mean, keep up morale isn't the right phrase, but keep people going? Because, you know, yes, you guys are literally what we all needed, but that's also the weight of the world. And to keep it up for a week or a month or six months is one thing, but it's now been a year in. You're exactly right. As it was becoming clear that this was going to stretch on for a while, very early on, one of our team members called me. She's a wonderful psychologist. And she said, people need to know the truth, but also to have hope. And so there was a lot around that. When we saw positive things happening, as we could encourage people, as we could do other supports, remember, it's not just physical, but it was also emotional well-being and mental health. So we put a number of programs in and said to people, please take advantage of this because this is going to go on for a while. So we had things, programs called COPE, how to cope, how to think about this. But it was hard. It was really hard. And again, I cannot give enough thanks and praise to everyone who worked so hard. As we're speaking, we have 750 hospitalized COVID patients in our system alone. And I just got off the phone with one of our ICUs before I got on with you. And a nurse was um, describing to me how difficult it was. She lost a patient last night from this and how hard this has been. And she was talking about how important it's been for her to be surrounded by teammates and how frustrated she is when we hear people say, oh, this is not a big deal anymore. This is a really big deal. And I worry that we're not going to take it seriously enough now. We talk about burnout all the time in startup culture because you're working around the clock. We talk about burnout a lot right now because you're working around the clock and we're in a pandemic and people are caregivers at home and nothing is normal, but we are not in the medical professional field. We are not seeing death every day and patients every day. For you personally, just like you as a person, how have you protected your mental health? Well, it is about having some time away. One of the things that we know is that you can put up with so much, you can really do incredible work. And we're clearly seeing this with the doctors, the nurses, the other team members. You can do a lot if you've got things outside of work that are stable, that keep you going, that give you a break, that give you some respite. And I have been very fortunate to to have that. I could take a break. I could get some downtime. 
I'm fortunate with that. And I don't have little kids at home. I don't have someone who's sick. So I recognize, again, that I'm very fortunate. That's why it's so important as people are thinking about how do I, how do I take a break from this? That's certainly, I've been fortunate to, to be able to do that. And I'm very worried about so many people who don't have that ability or who have something going on where they never have a break from, from anything. I worry about how those people are going to be able to continue, how they're going to heal. And I'm already seeing some people who have chosen to leave medicine, healthcare altogether because they just don't want to face this. When you look at the state of the medical community, it's obviously this crisis has shown a spotlight on where it's strong and where there's real areas of improvement. Where do you think that the medical community needs to really address protecting itself and protecting a lot of the issues that we're talking about? It's very clear now that we're going to need to do more together across boundaries. Cities have to think about healthcare differently. The country has to think about healthcare differently, even the globe. So that's one piece of this. We also now know that there are other ways of delivering healthcare. Everyone got much more comfortable over this last year using technology, including in healthcare. And that's a positive because we need to, we need to look for some silver linings here. We need to use technology to take healthcare to more people and more in the moment. But it's also shown a huge spotlight on the challenges with social determinants of health. COVID hit people of color much harder, people who uh, do not have adequate health care, but people who have food insecurity, people who have housing insecurity. I mean, just housing alone, if you couldn't be socially distanced because of um, your living situation, you were going to have COVID and, uh, and be hit harder. So we have to really take a close look at how everything else impacts health as we're thinking about the health of the people that we serve. What do you want people at home who are going about their day-to-day, seeing that we're getting closer to the vaccine? What should be on their minds? Well, that's the first piece is that vaccines are providing some of that hope. And you asked earlier what was keeping people going. I have to say in healthcare, the vaccines have been a very bright spot. So the first and and clear point would be as soon as you can get a vaccine, get that vaccine, as that has implications for us everywhere. In the meantime, hang in there and be responsible about, not just for yourself, but for others. So I clearly would encourage everyone to keep wearing masks. Even after vaccinated? So once you're vaccinated, in small groups with other people who are vaccinated, the CDC just came out with some recommendations, that's fine. But even after you've been vaccinated, you still have to worry about others. 
So just to be like clear, if Danielle, I'm just making this up right now. Danielle were vaccinated and I'm not vaccinated. Could we go to dinner together? Could I go to her house for dinner? Maybe. And it goes like this. The more people who are vaccinated and together, the, you know, then, then you can feel safe if you were both vaccinated. And we're going to learn more about this over time. But the recommendation right now would be if the two of you are vaccinated, yes, and you're, you're fully vaccinated, you're two weeks out from the final dose, whether that was a single or, or two doses. But for people who haven't been vaccinated yet, you really need to think about that. And the more people you're around, the more you have to think about others. So there's a difference between two people who have both been vaccinated versus going into a large crowd. This will get better and better over time. But right now, it's too soon to do away with all of the important public health efforts. We have an actual lightning round, but I have a lightning medical round that I'm making up right now. I, I have a few friends that are pregnant and they have said, I don't know what to do. What would you tell them in terms of getting the vaccine? I would say really important to talk to your doctor. Uh, you need to weigh your risks. What looks increasingly likely is that it's safe for people who are pregnant. But again, every situation's a little bit different. And this would be a very important time to discuss with your doctor whether or not to get that vaccine. I saw somebody posted, they're getting vaccinated. The pandemic is over for them. Your reaction? We're all in this together. So that feels very selfish to me. Okay, last one. When you look at pictures or, or whether you're on social media or, or whatnot, of just it looks like some parts of the country, they're having a very different year than a lot of us are having. What is the first thought that goes into your head when you see a picture of a crowded restaurant or a bar outside in Florida or, or any place like that? I worry tremendously. Look how quickly things changed over the course of this year and how quickly we could be back in really dire circumstances. It's too soon, much too soon to declare this over. But we do see some light at the end of the tunnel, we believe, with these vaccines. Let them do their magic. And it is incredible that we have vaccines in this short span of time. That's the power of medicine and science. Give them time to do everything that they can do for all of us. Okay, now on to our actual lightning round. Biggest question on my mind is, how do you unwind with all of this? Like when you have an opportunity, what do you do? I've always liked puzzles. It takes my mind off of some things. So I'm a big crossword puzzle, jigsaw puzzle fan. That's what I do when I need to relax. Woman after my own heart. <laughs> first call when you get bad news. It's my husband. And he's my first call when I get good news too. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? I feel like I negotiate for myself every day because I'm always thinking about when should I speak up for myself? That if I'm not speaking up for myself, who is going to be? What is the last show you binge watched? Lupin on Netflix. I lived in Paris for a couple years as a kid. It's my favorite city in the whole world and gives me a chance to revisit that in something that's a fun caper show. What do you think is the most accurate thing on Grey's Anatomy? I've not seen a lot of it, but I would say the times that I have, I've spent a lot of time saying, oh my God, that would never happen. This could never be real. 
it's much more dramatized than uh, real. But I will tell you that I met my husband in an emergency department 34 years ago. No way. And it was when a patient was in the emergency department. So sometimes there are dramatic things that happen in real life. Oh, I love that. Okay, that's a good story. Dr. Forey, thank you and your team for all that you have done on behalf of everyone listening to this. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 